Welcome to The Source from the ATA, conversations about telehealth and virtual care from the thought leaders, experts, and visionaries who are working to change the way the world thinks about healthcare. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and today our guest is Dr. Ken Abrams. Ken is a managing director in Deloitte's strategy practice, the national physician executive for Deloitte's life science and healthcare group, and the co-leader of its virtual care market offering. Ken is also an anesthesiologist with more than 25 years of experience as a practicing physician and physician executive in academic medical centers and integrated delivery systems. Over those years, Ken has developed a reputation as a physician leader and as a thought leader in clinical strategy, performance improvement, and clinical integration. Join us as we dive into the future of virtual care with Ken Abrams. Ken, thanks so much for being with us today on ATA Source. My pleasure, Greg. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity to spend some time with you. I've been excited to talk to you as the co-leader of Deloitte's uh, virtual health practice area. I know that you have some pretty significant experience looking across this industry. And so I'm really eager to get your perspective on some of the issues that we're seeing in the marketplace now. And as we kick off, I would love to just start with sort of your definition of virtual health Uh, You know, people hear telehealth and often will think, well, that's me on the phone with my doctor, but uh, clearly things have changed a bit. Can you uh, can you give us some perspective on what virtual health looks like today? Happy to do so, Greg. And, you know, we do have a broad based definition uh, in in the firm as we think about virtual health, because as you described it, it's more than just getting on the telephone with the doctor although that could be a component of virtual health. But let me start with what our definition actually is. So kind of level set the situation for for, for everybody. Um, In in our mind, virtual health encompasses the at a distance, if you will, interactions to further the care, health, and well-being of customers in a connected, coordinated manner. And virtual health utilizes telecommunication and networked technologies to be able to connect clinicians and patients um, and also to connect with other clinicians to remotely deliver a variety of discrete healthcare services and to do so either synchronously, that is simultaneously, or asynchronously whereby we can exchange messages over different, over different formats, including things as simple as, as um, secure email. But virtual health goes beyond just simply enabling the video visits or the teleconferencing appointments. It really can act as a complement to, or even a substitute for in-person care delivery based upon individual population and patient needs, healthcare organization capabilities, and of course, resource availability to be able to enable all of those modalities. Ken, would you go so far as to include, uh, I guess, less personal interactions like remote monitoring, for example, uh, under the aegis of uh, virtual health? Or is that, a, is that a bridge too far at this stage? No, absolutely not a bridge too, too far at all, Greg. Uh, remote patient monitoring is a virtual health delivery cap- capability. Um, a way of being able to take care of patients, specifically patients who have um, chronic illnesses like diabetes, congestive heart failure, where we can get daily input from home-based monitoring devices, 
bring that information into you know, a broader platform where we can mm. see how people are doing on a daily daily basis. And then as necessary, either by virtue of the care team or the patient themselves, go ahead and enable either a telephonic visit or, or a video visit. Um, send out reminders to those individuals when medication uh, may be required. And actually, we're starting to introduce some artificial intelligence into those capabilities that will mm. help people adjust their medications, for example, um, as needed based upon some of the, the the findings and data that they will provide to us. All right. That is absolutely fascinating. And I think we're going to get into that as we think about sort of the future continuum of care. But before we go there, I'd love to just back up for a little bit. Now that we've sort of set the bar in terms of what we're talking about when we talk about virtual health and think about, can you describe for us what was the state of virtual health before the current COVID-19 pandemic crisis mode that we're in now? Uh, because I think uh, most of our listeners are aware there's been really a sea change uh, that's happened over the last two or three months. But back us up to you know December, January, all the way that far back in history. Give us a sense of what that virtual health environment looked like. Yeah, it's truly amazing, Greg, as to how the world has changed um, since the onset of this pandemic that we are all suffering suffering through. And virtual health has changed significantly as well, and uh, hope we'll get a chance to talk about that during this conversation. Mm-hmm. But going back, right, and I'll go back, you know, I'm going to go way back, if, if you don't mind, Greg, all the way back to 2018. Um, That's radical, but let's try it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we, we at Deloitte, through our Center for Health Solutions, conduct a series of surveys over a periodic basis. And one of those is our Deloitte Consumer Survey. Um, we did that in, 20, in 2018, um, and we're about to do that again now. Uh, and that survey indicated from a patient and consumer perspective that about 77% of those individuals had not yet tried virtual health, but at the same time, 57% of those consumers were very willing to try it. So there was a tremendous amount of interest um, at that point. On the flip side of that, when we look at the availability of virtual health services from a you know, provider, physician, clinician uh, perspective, there was you know, pretty limited investment and engagement in virtual health by those providers. So that same exact Deloitte survey that I mentioned Um, showed that only 14% of physicians had implemented virtual health technologies um, in in, in their practices, and only 9% had implemented remote patient monitoring to your earlier question um, with integration from those wearable devices that provide data such as heart rate, blood glucose Mm -hmm. uh, measurements, um, oxygen readings, and the like. It sounds as though before the pandemic, virtual health was kind of a black box for both providers and patients with neither one having really experienced it at its full potential. Would you would you say that that's accurate? Yeah, I, I would say it's largely accurate. I don't know that I'd call it a black box. I think the way I might describe it was it was a series of um, point solution based experiments that were taking place mm. um, within a number of um, 
physician practices, and a number of health systems. Now, that being said, there definitely have been some very pioneering organizations out there that have done some some really impressive things um, with virtual health as well. A big part of what has limited the um, enthusiasm and the adoption of virtual health um, Mm -hmm. has has been the reimbursement policies uh, that have existed for virtual health where it was extremely difficult to be able to actually get paid for those services that were being provided, unless under very limited and specific circumstances, right? Such as an individual being in an extremely um, remote rural location where they might be able to substantiate that kind of payment, at least under you know, Medicare type programs and other governmental programs. So as that started to um, change with the onset of COVID. And I think many listeners probably are aware of the fact that um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services have um, authorized well over 85 conditions and situations for which um, caregivers can bill now and get appropriately reimbursed for those services. There's been a bit of an explosion. Now that's been facilitated by more than just reimbursement, um, but certainly that's been a component that has been of of benefit. So let's talk about that explosion a little bit. Obviously, more patients than ever have had an opportunity to experience uh, virtual care over the last few months. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's certainly well into the millions of visits that have happened. I'm curious what your thinking is about what that patient experience has been like. How how has the the patient's attitude toward virtual care changed, and is it you know what what do you foresee for the future there? Yeah, so we're he- we're hearing a lot about that um, from you know from the patient perspective, Greg. Uh, we are hearing in large part right, patients are starting to view the notion of in person care as almost the last line of defense. All right. I'm going to go for in-person care if I need to go for in-person care because I can't get that care to, to be delivered virtually. Um, so let me share with you, Greg, a, a real personal example. Um, so my dad um, suffers from a, a chronic leukemia, um, mm-hmm. not something that he is going to die from in all likelihood. <laughs> it's extremely stable and, and known to be very stable. Um, but over the past couple of months, he just right around the COVID time, time frame, he started experiencing some difficulty in swallowing. Um, and then COVID started coming, coming about. Um, he needed to get some evaluations. I'm going to keep the story relatively short for the audience, given the time that we have. But to let you know that my dad's 84 years old, he participated in numerous telemedicine visits. Um, in fact, I joined him for a number of those where I was able to join that that visit remotely with him with himself and his his doctors. Um, at one point, we had um, two doctors on, and um, my dad and my mom and myself on as part of the, that, that discussion. All of us were able to engage in discussion, the evaluation. Of, of what his state was um, in a very meaningful full way, um, delivered with great care, great, great empathy. Um, everyone's questions got answered. If my 84-year-old dad can do it, um, it's pretty clear that it can be done by o- almost anyone and be done very successfully. 
That does sound like a sign that things are ready to change. I guess I'm curious before we move on completely, one of the sort of the tropes of medical care is that that face-to-face, person-to-person relationship between the patient and the doctor or the nurse uh, is so critical in terms of forming trust, for example. And I guess I'm just curious, you know, do you see that sort of the balance of convenience and some of the other advantages that you noted are going to eventually outweigh that when you talk about uh, person-to-person care as the last line of defense? Yeah, so I don't think... I, I don't think it's going to be outweighed um, in terms of eliminating trust. I think what's really happening, Greg, is the trust equation, if you will, is changing a little bit. Um, mm. And caregivers are are learning through these virtual means how to be able to deliver an empathetic uh, visit right, through, through video conferencing, how to make sure that, you know, they're engaging in the level of eye contact on a video visit, for example, that that, that helps. Um, the ability to sense people's un, uneasiness or discomfort uh, going forward. It is going to take a little bit of, of a shift um, in, in, in learning and competencies and capabilities for the caregivers to be able to impart that um, and to continue to build that trust. I don't think that in-person care is going to go away completely. But I do think that there's the opportunity for people with chronic illnesses, you know, like like my dad, to be able to perhaps do, you know, a half or two thirds of his follow up visits remotely over virtual capabilities as opposed to in person and the rest of those visits as necessary to be done in person. Of course, procedures um, are going to be still going to be done right now, at least in person. Uh, I suspect that's going to continue to evolve and change too as, as as we advance our capabilities further. So I want to pull on one of those threads a little bit, Ken. You talked about new competencies being important for physicians in an era where virtual health is uh, you know, ascendant or at least ascending. Can you give us a little more perspective on what some of those competencies will be, how they look different than today? Yeah, happy to talk about that a little bit, Greg. And I often describe it, um, and I don't think I'm the first person to have coined this term. I'm not sure who is, um, but if I do, if I can find that out, I will give them appropriate credit. Of course, it's it's really evolving bedside manner into website manner. Um, <laughs> yeah, I like that. And and I think what we're talking about is you know creating a virtual experience that's really on par with an in-person experience, uh, both from the experience point of view, but also the outcomes point of view and making sure that, you know, we're focused on, on what's critical, um, making sure that we allow adequate time for questions, right? um, which sometimes, you know, takes a little bit of extra time to, to include, but is really important. Um, providers, you know, as they continue to develop this, will we'll come to understand that expressing empathy over a video is different than it is in person. Um, you know, we miss some of those clues and cues. So it's just going to take a little bit uh, more effort. And we know from just some of our own Zoom knowledge from all of us who spend so much time on Zoom, um, that that can be a bit 
draining and a bit fatigued. Mm-hmm. So making sure that, you know, they caregivers build in adequate um, and adequate opportunities for them to refresh themselves as they engage in these video visits with patients, I think is going to be important. And I, I think that that is, it's going to be fascinating to see how that evolves even into medical education. You know, over the last several years, we've seen a number of medical schools begin to focus more on communication skills in general. Uh, some schools even offering you know, media and social media training to uh, medical students and, and to residents and so forth. We now have another layer to add to that in terms of really building that website manner. I, I love that. I'm also curious, you know, we, what we've seen is this explosion of virtual care that's happened over the last few months by necessity. But you know, let's assume that that necessity ends at some point and hopefully the not too distant future. How does telehealth fit into a future continuum of care? You know, you've talked about the fact that patients may actually come to view it as sort of a last line of defense to go visit the doctor in person. But what about systemically? How does virtual health fit into the continuum of care if you are a hospital or a health system or a large medical practice as we think, you know, one, two, three years down the road? Yeah. So the way we think about it, Greg, and as we've been working with our clients around this is to think about it as a coordinated, connected care delivery model. We know that healthcare has been fragmented. Uh, for many, many years. And one of the things that virtual health allows us to do is to bridge those connections of fragmentation, right? So to bridge the the change from going from the hospital to home, as opposed to having to just have a rapid discharge, somebody gets home, they don't have that remote patient monitoring that you were describing earlier, and they end up bouncing right back into the hospital and getting getting readmitted. Well, we can bridge that gap by using some of these virtual health capabilities, right? Having blood pressure, heart rate, pulse oximeters, blood glucose monitors, scales, things like that available to people in their homes. Um, Keep a better, closer eye on them as they make those transitions transitions um, from, you know, in inpatient admission to full recovery. Um, by the same token, right, we can I- engage more deeply um, in being able to ensure that people are, you know, managing their medications effectively, our ability to provide care and case management to, to people with, um, with uh, chronic conditions the ability to intervene if somebody's having an exacerbation of an asthmatic attack, right, where they have the ability to to link into a physician um, or another um, um, advanced practice professional to help mm-hmm. address that without having to go to the emergency department. So there are so many ways in which this can be of, of tremendous value. And even inside of the hospitals, right? Let's talk about some of the advanced capabilities that exist around virtual health. Um, Tele-ICU being being one of the major uh, examples. We know that we've got a shortage of critical care physicians and boy, has has COVID-19 ever brought that to light, right? How, How essential it is to provide that kind of care. Well, when you can build a tele-ICU and have a virtual ICU environment where you can have a team of you know, one or two critical care physicians, a couple of um, critical care nurses, 
overseeing mm-hmm. and taking care of, you know, a hundred or more critically ill patients with appropriate monitoring devices and um, analytical support and algorithms to um, ensure that people are on the right course to recovery. Um, you can deliver a tremendous experience and the nurses who are there at the bedside, knowing that, you know, it's basically just the touch of a button away from some, you know, real valuable expertise to help if a patient becomes unstable for some reason is just a huge benefit for, for patients, their families, um, and the entire caregiving staff. Ken, this idea about the virtual ICU is really fascinating. I'm wondering if you have thoughts about other types of care, other modalities that we traditionally associate with a hospital that might actually look different in an age of virtual care. Yeah, absolutely, Greg. So one of the things that we are seeing more and more interest in from from clients is the concept of hospital at home. That is the ability to provide uh, hospital level services, so acute care uh, in the patient's home, right? We talked about the remote patient monitoring. When you take the remote patient monitoring devices and you connect them with a virtual um, communications platform, a secure mm-hmm. platform, enable that with, with video monitoring and communications um, and provide a group of providers and caregivers on the other side of that, we can actually deliver care for patients with, ac- with acute illnesses like, like pneumonia or cellulitis um, and other conditions in, in their home and do so at um, you know, lower, co- lower costs with great experiences um, and excellent outcomes. In fact, there was a recent report presented um, by one of the major cancer centers in the country at a, a um, cancer society meeting just very recently. Mm-hmm. Um, they've actually been able to deliver uh, care to cancer patients um, who would require acute care. Now, they're not delivering chemotherapy at this point, sure. but they are delivering hospital-level care in the patient's home for lower costs um, with excellent outcomes and, and, and very good patient experiences. That is remarkable. It's amazing when you talk about this subject, we always wind up circling around to the sort of the elephant in the room relative to virtual care. And you brought it up early on in this discussion, and that is attitudes about reimbursement and sort of the financial models that exist around virtual care today. You reference the fact that Medicare has vastly expanded the kinds of reimbursement that they're willing to do, at least in the short term, around virtual care. Can you give us some perspective around sort of the reimbursement and the financial models that you see coming out of the COVID-19 crisis? Yeah, and, and, and this in part is a little bit of the holy, holy ground, Greg, right? Because if we can get the reimbursement aligned properly so that incentives for providing that virtual care, receiving virtual care, and paying for virtual care are all synchronized mm-hmm. and in, in alignment, um, we truly have the opportunity to transform the delivery system into something that is so much more consumer-centric. So what I think we're, we're hoping to see is that CMS will continue to promote the value of, of virtual care delivery for um, the Medicare 
population. Um, those regulations are, are loosened now, as I mentioned previously. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be really hard for them to be pulled back because you can say the genie's out of the bottle, the horse is out of the barn, right? whichever cliche kind of fits right. best. Um, for that, but it's going to be really tough to, to go back. And what we know is oftentimes where CMS goes, um, commercial payers have a tendency to follow. Mm -hmm. I also think it's, it gives us the opportunity to help accelerate this concept of value-based care um, that we've all been, been talking about. And I'm hopeful that our commercial um, payers will, will, will support that notion and really begin to work um, with the health systems on being able to deliver a value proposition that encourages um, and incentivizes health systems to continue to invest in, in virtual health. Um, there's been many reports of studies that have shown that um, care delivered virtually um, help improves outcomes and helps reduce cost, and therefore should be in everybody's best best interest to continue to support. Finally, it's going to require probably some regulation changes at the state insurance mm -hmm. level um, to ensure what the essential requirements are for um, for those insurance plans to include in in all of their virtual health. Um, policies. And honestly, I would love to be able to dive into a discussion about virtual care and value-based care, but I'm afraid that's a six-episode series that we'll have to postpone for uh, down the road a little bit. Um, Ken, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on ATA Source today. Your perspective on virtual care and where it's going uh, it's been incredibly valuable, and I know our, our listeners are going to gain a tremendous amount from uh, uh, having connected with you here. Thanks very much, Greg. It was a pleasure to be with you. Absolutely. And before we drop off, just real quickly, if there are listeners who want to connect with you, know more about the virtual care practice that you co-lead at Deloitte, what's the best way for them to do that? Probably the easiest way is drop me an email. Very simply, K Abrams, A-B-R-A-M-S, as in Sam, at Deloitte.com. Fantastic. We'll make sure that that goes in the show notes. So if you're driving right now, don't pull off the road. You can just check out the show notes when you get where you're going and do be sure to connect with Ken and his team. Uh, thanks so much to our listeners. We will see you next time. Thanks for listening to The Source from the ATA. We want to hear from you. What topics should we cover? Who would you like to hear from? To share your comments and suggestions and for more information about the ATA, telehealth and virtual care, please visit our website, americantelemed.org, and our American Telemed accounts on LinkedIn and Twitter. Finally, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and share this podcast on your favorite platforms. It really makes a difference. Copyright 2020 ATA. All rights reserved.